Well, the first, 40, thir- first 39 books of the, of the chapters of the book of Isaiah is really God confronting his people, Israel. There's, there's a bunch of sin and idolatry going on. For the first 39 books, the prophet Isaiah is confronting God's people. And then for the last half of the book, God starts to comfort his people. And that turn happens here in Isaiah chapter 40. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah begins to prophesy as God reveals to him this coming invasion of Babylon. Here in this setting, Jerusalem is intact. God's people are able to go to temple. They're able to worship. They are able to make their spiritual disciplines and sacrifices and practices. But there will come a day in the future where the Babylonian empire comes in and besieges the city and drags God's people off into exile. And so for the second half of the book, Isaiah is actually prophesying this. He's warning the people that there is a day coming where they will be under God's judgment and they will be dragged off into captivity by the Babylonians. And he also predicts predicts the coming Messiah. He prophesies about the coming Messiah. But the second half of the book, it's, it's important for us to note that it's primarily comfort. God's warning about the coming consequences of the sin that he was confronting them for in the first half of the book. But instead of continuing to confront them for that sin, he's comforting them. That even though you will be underneath my hand of discipline, I am here for you. I will comfort you. And so that's what's happening here in in this book. It's kind of this turning point into the book. And really, as I look at Isaiah chapter 40, and as I said, the main lesson that God has been teaching me is that I am vulnerable, but God is victorious. And we see a lot of vulnerability here in the book of Isaiah, and specifically this chapter, Isaiah chapter, uh, the 40th chapter of Isaiah. And so this morning, I just want to look at how we are vulnerable. And maybe this isn't you. I actually should, I could just say how I'm vulnerable and how God is victorious. But I'm going to make the assumption that it applies to all of us. So I'm preaching to myself this morning, and you're just listening on. I hope God uses it to help lead you into his goodness. And so here's what we're going to look at this morning. Like Israel, we are vulnerable too. There's a couple things in this passage that we see that Israel, God's people, are vulnerable to. We are the church, the New Testament church. We also are vulnerable to these things. We're going to look at the vulnerabilities pretty quickly, and then we're going to turn and we're going to look at God's victories over our vulnerabilities. So the first two things here are war and iniquity. Like Israel, we are vulnerable to war and iniquity. Look at verse 1 and 2. The prophet Isaiah, speaking on behalf of God, speaking the words and the voice of God, says, Comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. So this is a great verse in that it shows us God's victory over our warfare and our iniquity, right? We're going to talk about that in a minute. But before we do, it's important for us to keep in mind that if we weren't vulnerable, we wouldn't be in warfare, and we wouldn't have iniquity that needed to be pardoned. See, the reality is God's people, whether it's Israel thousands of years ago, whether it's the New Testament church in the first century, or whether it's us in 2020, we are vulnerable people. And just like Israel, you and I, were vulnerable to war. Are we not? I I hope you've felt this vulnerability the last couple months. Some of you have felt this vulnerability your entire lifetime. We have veterans in our church who have fought in wars, who have lived through the Vietnam War. We have people in our church who have lived through World War II. 
You know that we as mankind, we as human beings, we are vulnerable to war. Now, praise God, there hasn't been a a massive war that has broken out in the last couple months, but I think all of us, if we're honest, we feel like the world is on the verge of war. We've experienced warfare in our own city. And this is a humbling reminder to us that we are vulnerable. The fact that Isaiah comes on behalf of God and God is telling his people to be encouraged because warfare has ended, before we look at the fact that it has ended, we need to be reminded that we exist in this life where war can crop up at any moment. Because we as humans are vulnerable to war. We're also vulnerable to iniquity. Iniquity is sin, it's transgression, it's missing the mark. It's not living the way that we were created to live. It's living unjustly. It's not being aligned with our creator and the way that he has created us to function. And so again, this is an encouraging verse because it talks about the victory of God that he says that her iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. But before we look at the victory of God, I think we need to pause and remember we're vulnerable to iniquity. Again, I don't know about you, but the last four months I've realized how vulnerable I am to sin, to my own wrong judgments, to my own misdeeds, to my own missteps, to my own missing the mark to my own complaining, to my own whining, to my own looking inward, to my own ignoring other people's plight and pain and issues. Iniquity, it's, it's sin. It's our own sin or brokenness plus the sin and brokenness that others have done to us. It's, it's this complicated, that word iniquity there is this, it's this complicated reality of our own wrong choices that have impact and negative consequence upon others, but also other people's own wrong choices and actions towards us that have negative impact and consequences upon us. Israel was vulnerable to this, to kind of the massive scale wars and rumors of wars and the reality of war, but then also to their own personal iniquity. They are guilty of hurting their closest friends, families, and neighbors, and the nations around them. And they are guilty of being hurt by their closest friends, families, and neighbors, and the nations around them. Vulnerable. The third thing that I see in this text that God has kind of pointed out to me the last couple months is that I am vulnerable to my own vanity. Look at verse 6, 7, and 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? And here's God's answer. All flesh is grass, and all of its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades when the Lord breathes, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. See, vanity is thinking much of ourself. Or, or, or thinking much of our achievements, or thinking much of our abilities. Vanity is, is thinking that, that some beauty which we may experience, whether it's art, whether it's creation, whether it's physical beauty, whatever it is, whatever you would attribute beauty to, vanity is thinking that we created that. 
that our structures, that our nations, that our, that our political leanings, that our efforts, that our abilities helped to, maybe not help to create, God uses us to help to create, but, but created it. Like, we are responsible for the beauty that we experience in life. That's vanity. This passage here is reminding us that all beauty that we see and experience, it's that, that our flesh is like a flower of the field, and it may be beautiful for a season. If you open your eyes and look around right now, the flowers are beautiful. They're in full bloom. Where will they be in a month? Worse yet, where will they be in six months? Underneath snow, frozen in the ground, dormant, no beauty, no visible beauty to be seen. This passage is reminding us that we are vulnerable to vanity. That, that when things are going well, we tend to forget that it's only for a season. When things are going well, we tend to take credit. We tend to think, yeah, I invested my money well. Yeah, I ate well, I exercised well. Yeah, I got a good education. Yeah, I disciplined myself really hard and well. And, and we tend to become self-reliant people who look to ourselves and our own achievements. And this passage is reminding us, while well, it's reminded me the last couple months, that any beauty I experience, if attributed to myself, it's vanity. Because any beauty that I see, it, it's from the Lord. He determines beauty. He determines longevity. He determines life. Look at verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades. Anything you experience in this life will fade. It is temporary. But the word of, the, of our God will stand forever. And so we're going to come back to talk about how he's victorious. But for now, I just want us to pause and notice that just like Israel, we're vulnerable to our own vanities. What is it for you? Fourth, we are vulnerable, just like Israel, to idolatry. And the entire setting of this book is about idolatry. God is confronting again in the first 39 chapters of the book his people's idolatry that is worshiping idols, worshiping false gods. And in the second half of the book, he's comforting them in the midst of the discipline because of their idolatry. And we need to keep in mind that just like Israel, you and I are vulnerable to idolatry. Look at verse 18 through 20. God says, to whom will you liken to God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Here, here, here's what's being said here. And, and it has less to do, so verse 20, it says, He who is too impoverished, it doesn't it doesn't mean as much of poverty of wealth and ability to bring an offering. It says, he who is too impoverished for an offering. Okay, so it sounds like the person who, who can't afford to bring an acceptable offering to God, they, they instead choose wood. Well, to, to find wood that will not rot and to seek out a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that, that, that takes finances, that takes some wealth. What God is saying here is that the person whose, whose soul is so corrupt, there's an impoverished, impoverishedness of the soul 
There's this internal, it, it stems out of this vanity. And out of this vanity rises up this idolatry, or, or maybe it's vice versa. They were, they're inseparable, vanity and idolatry. In our own iniquity, these things are so intertwined. And, and what he's saying here is the person who's impoverished in their soul, they're too impoverished to receive from God what God has given to them. They're too impoverished to receive God's love. And so instead, they will create idols or these false gods to worship, or they will try to appease God. How often do we try and appease God, or, or we try and create different structures or systems or religious efforts to try and keep God happy with us? Or, or maybe some of us may get caught in idol worship without even realizing it. We're susceptible to this church. Our idols don't often look like golden calves, but they often look like us chasing our own achievements by us living out our own vain pursuits. What, what are your idols? Again, it's probably not a golden calf, but it may be comfort. It may be sitting on your couch watching Netflix. It may be going on a vacation every weekend, and nothing wrong with either of those necessarily in perspective within within holding everything with an open hand. We are vulnerable to worshiping the idols that we create. And then lastly, like Israel, we are vulnerable to limited capability and capacity. Keep this in mind because our world right now is going to tell us that we are capable and that we have, we ought to have the capacity to do whatever we want. I mean, the world is yours, right? Shoot for the stars. You have a dream? Go get your dream. Live the American dream. That's the air that we breathe. That's the life that we live. That's how we were raised. Well, praise the Lord, my mom always brought me a dose of reality. When I wanted to be a professional baseball player, she was like, you're, you're good at high school baseball. High school baseball, my son. There's a long distance between what you're doing now in Grand Marais, a town of a thousand people playing on a small, teeny little, smallest A-class high school baseball in Minnesota and being a major league baseball player. So I love you, son, but I don't know that you're going to be a professional baseball player. Thank you, Mom, for telling me reality. But the reality is we live in this culture, in this world, where, where we're led to believe that we should be capable of whatever we set our mind to. And look at what the scriptures tell us. It tells us that we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable to our own limited capability and capacity. Look at verse 29. He, God, gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Okay, again, so we're seeing the focus here is on victory, but before we get to victory, we need to do an honest assessment of our vulnerability. If he gives power to the faint, what does that mean? That, that you're faint. And if he increases strength, what does that mean? That you need an increase. And then verse 30 is so powerful. It says, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. In this culture, like in many cultures, and we're not going to get into gender dis debates here between e equality between man and woman. We believe that men, are, men and women are created equal in the image of God, co-laborers co in the gospel and on earth. But there's a reality that there are some biological differences, right? 
There's also some spiritual differences in roles and how we serve one another and how we lead and follow. That's for another sermon. But the reality is here in this culture and just like many cultures that, that young men are like the pride of the culture. They're the ones who generally are sent to war, sent into battle. They're the ones generally who win strength contests and who play sports at the highest level. Right? And so this is what it's saying, that even youths shall faint and be weary, and generally youths have more energy, more strength, more, more veracity than elderly, probably more stupidity. But we're looking here at strength, capability, capacity. So younger people generally have more capacity to handle more pressure than elderly. And young men are supposed to be the heroes of society with all the strength, with all the energy, with all the testosterone. And here, God is reminding us that even those are vulnerable. They're susceptible. We have limited capability and capacity. And I can tell you this, I'm, I just turned 36 and I feel it more and more every year. I remember back in the day when I was 26, I thought I could do anything. When I was 22, I thought I could do anything. But yet there's moments where you crash. You go hard, you go hard, you go hard. You, you pour it all out for your own enjoyment, chasing your own idols and vanity, or you pour it all out in a selfless way for the good of others, seeking the kingdom of God, and you hit a wall. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. Church family, don't fight against this. See, in acknowledging our vulnerabilities, we can actually turn now and embrace God's victory. The, the way to deal with your vulnerability of war, iniquity, vanity, idolatry, and limited capability and capacity is not to try harder. It's not to buck up. It's not to to. To do this in your own strength is to turn to the God who is victorious. And that's what this passage is about. This passage is reminding us that we are vulnerable. And it's specifically because we are vulnerable that we need to cling on to a God who is victorious. And so let's look at the next part here. God is victorious over what? Well, you guessed it, over the same things that we just looked at. God is victorious over the nations or over the wars I put nations here instead of wars because who causes war? Who goes to war? The nations. Look at how this passage reminds us that God is victorious over the nations of the world who we can live in fear of. Not, I'm not saying we should live in fear of them. I'm saying we often do live in fear of the world powers and the nations around us. And this passage is reminding us that God is victorious over the nations. Verse 4 and 5, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. There, there's this day of reckoning, of equalizing the playing field, of true justice from God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall, shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord of Yahweh has spoken. There's this day where all people will see him for who he is. All of the nations of the world will be put in their places. Look at verse 15, 16, and 17. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. Oh, how good for the nations of the world to know 
who are competing with each other over trading rights, over land, over territory, over religion. A drop in the bucket. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. The nations of the world will give an account to their creator, the Lord. Look at verse 22 and 23. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. That's you. That's me. We were just compared to grasshoppers. Stop thinking much of yourself, church family. Stop thinking much of yourself, Andrew. That, that was the message that I got from the Lord the last couple months and I'm just sharing it with you because I can't bear it alone. Yeah. God loves me. He redeemed me. We're going to get there In Jesus, I am valued. But if I think of much of myself, if I forget that I'm vulnerable to my own vanity and idolatry, I need to be reminded that I'm like a grasshopper. If, If I think that my thoughts, my philosophies, my agenda, my ways are something great, I've got it all out of whack. For I'm like a grasshopper. Verse 22, second half who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Who brings princes to nothing? God raises people up and God takes people out. Why? Who? When? We don't know. But God is the sovereign one of the universe. And then look at verse 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the earth, of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God is victorious over the nations. Secondly, God is victorious over our iniquity. And again, we saw this in verse 2. He says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, my people, my city, and cry to her that her warfare is ended. I will be victorious over her warfare. There will be more wars in the future. Remember, he's predicting here that you're going to be dragged off into exile. But in the large scheme of things, I am victorious. There will come a day when Christ returns And there will be no more tears or suffering or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Behold, he is making all things new. Wars will cease. And our iniquity is atoned for. It's taken care of. It's dealt with in Jesus. Let's keep going. God is victorious over our vanity. Again, this verses 6 through 8 reminds us of our vanity. I hope as you read that, you are reminded that you are like the flower of a field. Yes, beautiful for a moment. Don't get mad about that. We all know it. Our bodies disintegrate. They fail us. They die. They wither. 
there's a different characteristic and beauty of a person as they age if they are transformed by God and conformed into his image and likeness. But physically speaking, we wither, we die. And so God is reminding us, you're vulnerable, you're not untouchable, your achievements aren't that great, they're not that long-lasting, and so look to the Lord, the one who is victorious over your vulnerability, the one whose word stands forever, as verse 8 says. The grass withers, the flowers fade, that's us. But the word of the Lord stands forever. He's sure, he's eternal, he's lasting, he's victorious. Over things that would otherwise fade away, God remains. Fourth, God is victorious over our idolatry. And this is, again, what the entire book ultimately is about. Look at verse 21. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told of you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? Even these rhetorical questions are reminding us that we don't know the mind of God, that we can't fully figure out the mind of God, that we ought to seek to know the mind of God, that we ought to get to know our God, and he does reveal himself to us. But still, we cannot create a God who is an idol of ours, who we fully understand, who we master. In fact, we ought to be mastered by God. We do not become the masters of God. Verse 22, it is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Jump down to verse 24. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has, he stem, has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. I'm victorious over all of your idols, over anything that you set up to worship, over anything that leads you astray. I will remain. I am worthy of your worship. I am worthy of your praise. These other things, the systems of the world, the structures of the world, the nations of the world, the iniquity in your own heart, the vanity of the world will all fail and fade but I remain. And so God is victorious over all the things that we build and set up and erect to try and, and exalt ourselves or to appease a holy God. God remains. And then lastly, God is victorious over our limited capability and capacity. And praise God for this. Look at verse 13 and 14. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? You know what this means? That God knows all things. That God is just. Nobody taught God justice because God is justice. Nobody gave God knowledge because God is knowledge. Nobody helped God understand because God is understanding. And how great of a God we have who understands what we've been through when he became a man and walked in our shoes. God knows what it's like to be vulnerable in the flesh but cling to a victorious God. Jesus himself as a man took on our vulnerabilities, church family. 
He didn't live them out. He didn't give in to the nations and to the wars. He didn't fear the nations and the wars. He didn't give in to iniquity. He didn't give in to vanity. He didn't give in to idolatry. And in his flesh, he even had limited capability and capacity. That's why he slept. He had a fleshly body. He had to rest. But God came in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, victoriously overcoming all of this, never giving in to the sin that we give into, never giving in to the world systems that we give into. And he redeemed us. No one taught him or showed him the path of justice or no one taught him knowledge because he is justice. He is knowledge. And then look at the end of the passage. As we close down again, verse 30, even youths shall faint and be weary and young men shall fall exhausted. Again, Jesus, in his physical body, became exhausted. He poured his life out. He poured his energy out. He poured his emotions out. He poured his passion out for the good of others. And he was exhausted. So exhausted that, that in the garden, before he was crucified, he sweat blood. Exhausted that he needed to sleep. But he did, verse 31, in our place on our behalf. It says, those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. And so church family, remember your vulnerabilities, but claim, cling to and claim God's victories. For God overcame all of this, all of your vulnerabilities in your place, on your behalf. You don't have to be defined by your vulnerabilities. You can be propelled out into the world clinging to and claiming God's victories. This morning, as we remember that, let's take communion together. Even in this passage, as we look at it here, and we, we are reminded that Jesus in his flesh, he felt faint. He became exhausted, just like you and I. He was, he was tempted to fear the Roman soldiers right? Wars. We're vulnerable of wars and nations. Jesus, a Jewish man, oppressed and persecuted by Roman soldiers, tempted in his flesh to fear them. He was vulnerable in his flesh to them, but he rose up victorious over them. Iniquity. There, there was all temptation around him that we could imagine, yet he didn't give in to it. He relied on his father. Vanity. Remember when Satan brought him up in, in Matthew chapter 4 and showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, if you worship me, all of this can be yours? Man, which one of us wouldn't give in to that? Somebody saying, I will give you everything you could have ever imagined, all the money, all the luxury, all the comfort, all the fun, all the sex, all the adventure, all the journey, all the, all the joy, but worship me. It's what Satan does with Jesus. And Jesus says, no, it's all going to pass away. It's all fading. I live for my father. Idolatry, bow down and worship me. No, you're not worthy of worship. He is. And then tired at the end of his rope. And he surrenders himself to God the Father to the point of death.
So as we gather as a church, we remember him, Jesus, our Savior. 